welcome to Authority Issues, a podcast about leadership management and the complex calculus about how soon is too soon to have all of our nice neighbors over for cocktails. It's mostly I'm trade. Rachel, aka Pie or Pie Bob. I'm into words, operations, cheese, and whiskey, and of course, leadership. And as seen on TV, I'm Kendall Miller. When were you on TV? Um, I was never on TV. It's okay. Keep going. Lies. You sit on a throne of lies. Okay. <laughs> Today on the show, we're talking with Mickey Haverin, who's SRE Engineering Director at Splunk. Hi, Mickey. Welcome, Mickey. Thank, Thank you. you. I'm excited to be here. And hi to everybody listening in. Uh, well, uh, as we often, uh, pretty much always do, uh, we're going to dive right in and uh, ask you to tell us about your path to leadership, to management, to where you are now. How did it start and how did it go? Sure. Um, the, my path to leadership, honestly, it's, it's sort of more of a path through life really than, than anything else. Um, the, from where I looking back, uh, like I can, I can say that my twenties were basically focused on technology on, you know, being really down in the weeds of engineering work. Like there's a, uh, a lot of very prototypical sort of engineering things that I was doing that. Um, my thirties were much more about uh, myself, about you know working out who I was, my own identity, uh, mm -hmm. defining who I was as a person, and you know all of the consequences about uh, downstream of that. And my forties so far have been mostly about relationships with other people, so particularly family. Like that's been a very big theme for me uh, in this decade. Uh, but also, but also, I think it ties in a lot into the leadership story as well. Um, it, it it really hasn't. It, it hasn't been until recently that I could look back and see like these kinds of decadal, decadal, decadal trends in my life. And it just, it actually makes me really curious to see what like my fifties are going to bring. Like, is there a new theme? <laughs> that fifties I are rad. <laughs> I think they sort of are like, it's the new 17, right? So, <laughs> um, uh, and so I figure, you know, at no point in the past could I have anticipated the the future decade. And so, like, I, I don't know that I have any possibility to guess at what my 50s or 60s are going to look like. But I'm just really interested to find out, honestly. Um, well, so so back up and break some of that down for us. I mean, yeah, talk about your three the, volumes the... of like it's books, each book in a series wow. so far. Well, we're going to even further, if you like. Um, yes, so I was, um, I was born in Poland. Mm -hmm. And my family emigrated to Australia when I was five. And so I grew up in Australia and that was where I went to school. And uh, I went to university there. Um, uh, and, well, I mean, to cut a long story short, I cratered terribly at university and dropped out. Um, I was uh, at a magnet school for uh, high school. And I think I had the classic, um, you know, gifted enough to be able to breeze through school, but not <laughs> Not so gifted that I could breeze through university so as well. Oh, feel that, yes. <laughs> and so that all went badly. Uh, but the the main thing at university for me was that I spent uh, most of my time at the University Computer Club. And the um, connections that I made there and the relationships that I built there are ones that have been uh, actually just critically important to my career ever since. Um, and uh, then I went to work for what I guess here we would call a startup, but there we called a small business, which mm -hmm. was an ISP. This was uh, the early days of the internet in Australia. And so it was a very exciting time. Um, the, uh, and I did, again, I did a lot of technical work at the time and uh, discovered that the same shortcomings that I had with college also applied to my professional life. And so I resigned in disgrace six months later, shortly ahead of being fired, I think. Um, oh, wow. But with a, a good relationship with, I think the, the leadership there and, um, 
uh, one of the owners of that business was basically a, a career mentor for me for the next, oh gosh, I don't know, um, uh, 15 years, something like oh. that. Uh, and then I repaid the favor. Um, uh, so uh, later on, I went to, you know, I, I spent a while contemplating my navel after that, you know, <laughs> scrounging for quarters to buy rice uh, and decided that I sort of understood what had gone wrong. And I had some sense of what I needed to work on in order to be, you know, just a more competent human being. Can you do you mind stopping for a second and going into that a little bit? Like what? Sure. I can understand you not knowing how to study. That was a thing that I didn't know how to do when I went to college and had to train myself to focus so that I could onboard information. But how how was the job situation like that? So honestly, that was um, I, I feel that it's a manifestation of the same thing. So the 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 story of not knowing how to study um, is, I think, a very classic one. Uh, but the the way that university admission works in Australia is that it's entirely entrance score based. You don't write essays and and you know, compete on the strength of your poetry. It's purely a question of the standardized testing. What is your score? And that determines which courses you have access to. Um, wow. And so the, um, uh, the, the, because I was part of a magnet school and I was part of that um, uh, you know, academically demanding stream, most of my peers went into medicine, which was the highest mm -hmm. ranking or the highest, uh, at the time we had undergrad medicine in Australia. Um, and that was you know, the highest score requirement. And second after that was law, which I had no particular interest in. <laughs> after that was a joint degree for science engineering, which I selected for prestige reasons more than anything else. Like I didn't have a clear idea of what I wanted to be doing or anything really. I was so of, few of us do at that age. Yeah, but, definitely. So, so I was just mostly drifting through life, and um, and so I picked that purely for those reasons. And it's of course a very demanding course to do, like a, a science and engineering um, double degree. And so unsurprisingly, it went terribly badly. Um, but the the way that that applied to work as well is just um, my ability to just plan around deadlines or hit deadlines to mm. take direction, honestly, like in retrospect, even to pick up on feedback or recognize that somebody was trying to help was just incredibly poor. Like there's just a whole heap of basic human skills that I think I didn't have. Um, and I think part of that, I mean, jumping around a little bit here, but I think part of that was also that... Um, uh, I was accelerated a uh, grade in school. Uh, I was in the public school system in Australia, and so there's very little that they can do with gifted children in that model typically, other than accelerate them a grade. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, I've seen the reports um, and the psychologists write up and so on, and they were all, you know, Mickey has like the right emotional and psychological maturity in order to handle a grade advancement, and that turned out to be wildly incorrect. <laughs> wah, wah. <laughs> uh, and so I was basically, I think, just. Um, socially behind my peers for a very long time. And mm -hmm. and it just meant that there was just a bunch of things that I didn't have in my toolkit socially. Yeah, it and sounds like the soft skills, although I hate calling them that, that was what you well, had needed experience in. So much a part of school. And, and I mean, I have friends that like entered college at 16 and same thing, just like I just wasn't ready to be there with all these peers. But anyways, keep yeah. going. So that was me. I entered college at the age of 16 as well. And it was just, uh, not, did hmm. not, you know, it, 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 I'm sure it's exactly the same story as many of your friends had. Um, so, so yeah, you were at this job and the, it didn't work out because you weren't uh, able to handle more of the 
the social cultural part of being at a job and, and working for someone, perhaps, perhaps this leads into an authority issues question. But uh, mm-hmm. so then you, you <laughs> left before getting put on a pip and let go. Uh-huh. I don't know if pips were a thing. Um, but no, I, uh, think I was actually already on a pip. I just didn't recognize it. I so, see. <laughs> you know, Unofficial. Help, but I was un, like, I was not able to pick it to pick up on it. Like I just didn't recognize mm-hmm. what that guidance was. And I didn't know what to had I recognized it, I wouldn't have known what to do with it. It would have been, mm. I think, an affront to my pride rather than any kind of, uh, rather than taking it constructively. Oh, I so feel that. I really do. I, I feel <laughs> I feel that very deeply. Similar yeah. things have happened to me. Uh, okay, so then you you left you uh, and, and you got another opportunity and you were just about to tell I us did. about that. So another, um, so the second opportunity running that I got via my connections at the University Computer Club, we're working for one of the research departments at university, uh, looking after their network. Um, I was pretty excited about just the general principles, like they were, they were working on um, uh, alphas, they were doing like modeling, you know, it was a time when the running joke was, can you make a Beowulf cluster out of those? And the answer is, yes, you can make a Beowulf cluster out of alphas. <laughs> um, and uh, they're, like I settled into that role, they basically had relatively few needs, like there were few demands other than keep things up, make backups get things from backups on occasion. That's and the key. <laughs> Can you get it back? <laughs> in fact, it was, yes. And so that gave me um, some room to basically settle into, like, what is a job exactly? Like, what what is this thing that I am doing in exchange for money? What does this mean? Uh, and just gave me some room to, to work that out. And so after a while, I was... Um, and I think it was not it was not a particularly stimulating thing. Like, there was a lot of work that I had to do on myself in that role, which I think was useful to not combine that with also professional demands that could have let me, you know, or technical demands that could have given me an avenue to avoid doing that work. Um, and then again, the, um, uh, the, the, the previous one, the, the now previous owner uh, of, this, of the startup that I'd been working for um, was now running, um, uh, basically had been hired in as the, um, to run the internet, the consumer internet operations of the second largest telco in Australia. And at the time, there was it was basically it was still wow. a mobile internet environment, uh, mm-hmm. but you know there was and so a, a lot of the game was basically growing the dial platform and trying to get global reach, which is you know a, a complex thing in a country as sparse as Australia. Mm-hmm. And he needed um, this was in the form of there was an acquisition that the telco had made of a uh, of a consumer internet operation that was you know at the time Australia had the highest density of internet service providers in the world per capita. And there were a ton of them, and there were a lot of enthusiasts that were running them, and they weren't being run very well as a general rule. Like, there's nothing like the maturity of systems that that we developed over the subsequent years. I, I mean, obviously. <laughs> uh, and so he came in with his own ideas about um, how to do things, and he was, you know, hands down the smartest person I think I have ever met or worked with. Like, he's a, a genuinely brilliant person. So he um, foresaw a lot of the trends around uh, uh, automation and uh, software engineering driven. Um, operations. Uh, and so he needed, basically, he needed to build a team that would drive that vision. And so I was the first person that he hired in after I managed to convince him that <laughs> I was no longer quite as much of a waste of oxygen. I have learned a few things. Yeah. <laughs> um, and we had a wonderful time for the next however many years. I uh, I was there for probably, I think, 
I forget now, seven, eight, nine, ten years, something like that. I resigned oh. off two or three times and then, you know, contemplated my navel for a month or two and decided that there wasn't really anything else I wanted to be doing. So I would go oh, back. Oh, you went back. Okay. So there was, yeah. Two so there or was three some times to let off yeah, the impressive. steam there. That's yeah, cool. learning lessons. But, yeah, you know, yeah. um, so I started there. Um, again, I... He had relocated to Sydney. I grew up in Perth on the West Coast. And so for a while, uh, because I was still in Perth and the rest of the team was in Sydney, um, I was kind of the, the terrifying wild card that struck fear into the hearts <laughs> of other engineers uh, when I would go wading in and tear apart their systems and, and rebuild them in various ways. Um, and, it, and I think that that was a deliberate kind of setup that he was using as a, like, a, not something I recognized at the time, but there was, I think in his mind, like there was, this was a weapon that he applied in order to shift the culture of those teams or to actually influence them. That it doesn't was, sound very healthy. <laughs> I mean, effective maybe. Um, the outcomes were what he wanted them to be. Um, and uh, after not too long, I, re I relocated to Sydney as well, because that was a thing that I needed to do for my own life development purposes. Um, and over my time there, I moved around. So we built out a huge platform. We took on, from the technical side, we um, you know, built out a global dial platform. We built out um, uh, a DSL platform. We acquired a cable platform that we also operated. Um, we built out you know, a, a, a Wi-Fi network. Uh, there was just a lot of things that we did. It was a, a time of huge growth in the industry. And it was just so much fun, honestly. Like, it was just great. Um, wow. And uh, there was nobody to tell us how to do it. Like everything was new. And so we very much charted our own path. And uh, the the political environment at the telco was very complicated because there was, you know, there are large IS that if you haven't worked in a telco environment, like it's a, it's a highly regulated industry. Mm -hmm. And so once you have access to the industry, you basically have a license to print money. And so your incentives for operating efficiently are pretty, pretty limited. And so what, what that turns into is um, very, um, large kind of centers of uh, self-interest. And so there's, you know, the, for example, there are the classic IT departments who are very much about writing documentation and outsourcing the actual work of operating or building these things, but they very much want to write all of the, um, they have want to have the architect job titles, the extremely high salaries, the um, the relationships and schmoozing with large vendors. I, I have some cynicism around the this. The fun part. parts. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Cisco took me sailing multiple times. I appreciated that. Um, hey, okay, yeah. The, um, but it was it was very challenging for us to say we're not going to use your processes or your systems because we regard WebSphere as bloated garbage, right? We're just going to run Apache on Linux, and they're like, nobody uses Linux. That's ridiculous. You must run <laughs> on Solaris or something reputable, incredible. Not this, not this pile of junk you downloaded off the internet, which is a verbatim quote. Um, <laughs> So anyway, all of that was fun because we had amazing political cover because we were effective. Like even though there wasn't a need to be um, uh, to drive efficiencies, like the the fact that we could do this um, inexpensively let us basically drive huge margins and low prices in the consumer market. Mm -hmm. And so we were extremely popular with the marketing folks and the sales folks, and they sure. boost. Mm -hmm. um, so <laughs> I spent some time there. Marketing. I, wait, just. Pause for a second. Marketing <laughs> ruled the roost. Okay. I mean, I've never heard of that. That's a shit. No, I'm kidding. Always. It's always ruling the roost. Anyways, keep going. Um, yeah. Well, I don't know. Like, I feel like in my time I've worked at, I think I can, that was definitely a marketing driven company. Uh, I would characterize yeah. Google as an engineering driven company with all the sure. 
and I think of Splunk as um, a sales-driven company in a lot of ways. Mm. Like the, the the focus on the customer is really paramount at Splunk. Like it drives everything. Uh, and so there's, um, uh, whereas I don't, honestly, I don't have that same sense of like um, uh, the marketing presence is, is just not as present, as omnipresent as it was. But um, Detour. So uh, I experimented with other things. Sure. Uh, in this role, um, the, after the first time I quit and came back, I joined the network side. So really doubling down on um, uh, uh, more of the hardware aspect, the logistics aspect, the um, kind of the wide scale, like you have to install things in, uh, in telco exchanges, like throughout the country and, you know, dozens or hundreds of locations. Um, so that was my role there was team lead. So I guess that was the first time that I had an actual leadership role, quote unquote, and I was terrible at it. Most of it was a project management kind of set of responsibilities and, yeah. I was, and I was terrible at them. No like, again, fun, no fun at all. So was this in you, still in your 20s or was this when you had moved to your the 30s 20s. volume? Sorry, say that again. Still in my 20s. Still in your 20s. Okay, so yeah, you had well, not now. started focusing on yourself as much yet. Okay. No, I really hadn't. And this was, um, uh, I was in a, I was in a new city that I didn't know. Sydney was a large city. It's not the friendliest of cities, although I, I do have a lot of warm memories of it. And so I had a lot of time basically to spend late nights at work. And most of my social connection was through work. And even though we're part of a very large company, we had a um, we had a tightly knit technical team that, that was basically the successors to this uh, company that had been acquired. And we had something of a bunker mentality because we had so much conflict with the um, engineering institutions, like the IT institutions uh, at this company, that it, it drove something of a bunker mentality, but also a lot of pride in how uh, in how well we were operating. Um, and so it just turned into a very insular environment in a lot of ways, except with a large checkbook, which is uh, always an interesting combination. Sounds a little dangerous. <laughs> it is. Yeah, it is. Um, and then a, later, a little later, as, as I said, I wasn't very successful as that in that team lead role. I was not you know, a, a gifted project manager. I am still not a gifted project manager. Um, and sometime later I took on, uh, I decided to take the bull by the horns and take on the establishment. And so I moved into an architect role and, you know, I got dressed up fancy and went to meetings and wrote documents and went head to head with, you know, people in front of VPs and argued and blah, blah, blah. And that was fun for a while. And then I, you know, I got somewhat bored of that as a role as well. Um, and about that time, I decided that maybe what I really wanted to do was try a change of pace. And I thought the finance industry would be interesting. Oh, wow. Like, oh, okay. Because I think I was enjoying the impact, but I thought like the 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 best, the biggest impact is surely something that just, it's not just dollar signs as a, as a measurement of the technical impact you're having. The thing that you're working on is dollar signs directly. I think that was my thinking around it. Okay. Uh, so I joined UBS, but I joined UBS at about the same time that Google came knocking. And so three months after I joined UBS, uh, Google extended an offer that I found too exciting. And they re and uh, the relocation to um, California as well came with that. Oh, and big time. Yeah. And so a month before my 30th birthday, um, I flew in with a suitcase, not knowing, I mean, to a first approximation, not knowing anybody in the country. That's not perfectly true, but not knowing very many people in the country. Um, sure. And wound up in, uh, in that Lego village in Santa Clara, where all of the all of the houses are one of four approved colors uh -huh. of like six approved architectural features. And it was just very strange. And everybody was driving on the wrong side of the road as well. So it was. <laughs> well, and a little different from like, definitely different from Sydney, but definitely very different from Perth. Yes. Um, yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah. Uh -huh. extreme. 
So you had made, you said you had made a bunch of connections via working uh, in the university, uh, the computer group there. Um, Not working there, but just spending all of the time that I should have been studying. I see. With other people who should have been studying. And was that also, was there also Usenet involved there? Were, did, were the people that you knew in the US from Usenet connections, all system no, recovery? people from the computer club that had relocated. Uh, okay. Uh, so I was not the first to leave, but in general, like we say that Australians are born with a passport in their hand. And so um, as one example, uh, uh, during my break between, I think after I um, quit from my first um, from my first job in disgrace, uh, I moved into a share house with five other students. Um, I was no longer a student, but the other five were. Uh, and of the six of us, we shared a, a six-bedroom house that was close to university. And uh, of the six of us, one is still in Perth. I think I haven't done the math on this, but it was something like five of them, uh, four of them wound up um, in the States. Uh, no, I'm sorry. Three wound up in the States. Two wound up in the UK. I think four of us wound up working for Google <laughs> from that one house. And so there's um, a point at which like some Australian paper, I think, just wanted to interview us with like a subheading of what was in the water or something like that. So. Right. So you you uh, you had a leadership role for a little while that was more about sort of organization than it was about leadership. And that did not appeal to you. It did not work well for you. Uh, you, uh, you had another role in between and then you you accepted an offer from Google. Was that a leadership role? It was not. That was um, an SRE role, Site uh-huh. Reliability Engineering, which gave me a label to use for the things that I was very familiar with already. Um, and I spent three years in uh, in the Mountain View office uh, working for Google. And then I moved over to New York for three years. I uh, lived in New York. And then when I came back, I decided to sort of replicate the... I mean, this, this was not the thinking, but it turned out that I recapitulated, I guess is the better word, that move into the network space that I'd done um, at the at the previous big role as well. And so I moved, um, trying to bring some of the SRE philosophy into the um, networking space at Google, mm-hmm. which is very unlike uh, the stories that they tell about the rest of Google. And that became a leadership role because there was, um, uh, like on its face of it, like that, the role was a leadership role directly of trying to bring about the cultural changes, the technical changes to bring in some of the, um, SRE nows into that space, and it turned into a line management role as well. In that, I was trying to build a team. I was not very successful at that. Like at most, I think I had two people reporting to me, um, and I burned myself out thoroughly. Like the mistake that I made there was very much about focusing on technical details and the like the mm-hmm. technical shifts that needed to happen, and not enough on building a capability to affect those technical shifts. Um, again, in retrospect, like there are basically, I would do everything differently. But, you know, one has to learn these things somewhere. And then I moved into a, sorry. Uh, <laughs> well, no. So was that the beginning of your, like, I mean, I, I'm, I'm sensing a little bit of a theme of very bright. So things come easily to you. And then you dip your toe in, find out you fail at some of the things you didn't expect to fail at because they're maybe softer people skills. Right. And, and even by nature of you being an SRE at Google, you have 
you have some kind of external validation that you're very good at the technical bits, um, uh-huh. right? And and then you you move into this leadership role and in trying to solve the problem with the technical bits when that was insufficient. Like like is this sort of the beginning of your transformation into leadership that that makes you successful today? Is figuring out oh hang on a second I gotta go sharpen these things or like how did you start to get better at that so that you're not burning yourself out so that you are building teams that are bigger or so that you are influencing the the shift in things mm-hmm. yeah so it's an interesting question and i think that there's actually something external that drives that so uh, a thing that is not perhaps obvious to folks listening to the podcast is that i'm transgender and so the there was a large part of my life where um I just didn't do things where things is a very broad set of things that in a lot of uh, people contact because I was, my thinking was it just doesn't make sense to invest in relationships because at some point, you know, I will be able to come out and then everything will change. And then, you know, I will just, you know, uh, it will be upsetting to all of the people or it will be difficult for me or difficult for them or at any rate, like I'm just not willing to invest. Uh, Like delay the, delay the pain of going through that. So, uh, you know, please feel free to tell me to, to ask a different question. But so there wasn't, this wasn't a situation where you didn't really understand that about yourself until later uh, that the fact that you were transgender, uh, that, but that it was something that you knew was true about yourself early on and you just felt like you couldn't be yourself fully because it would require a whole rehashing of everything later on. That's what you're saying. Okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's, there's a lot of, I guess there's a lot to this. Um, When I was uh, like transgender is a word that, that came late to me comparatively. Like Mm -hmm. I, I, there were things that I understood about myself and my identity, but I had no idea that there was anything that, you know, that this was a a label or that there were, in fact, any other people in the world that, you know, shared this kind of thing with me. And so there's just, uh, I mean, people talk, I think, a lot about the the negative kind of impacts of psychological health, of just feeling alienated and not being able to talk about these things. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, a lot of these things were true. But I think that um, in particular, um, a a large amount of why um, I was very late to an interest in interpersonal relationships of any kind um, was specifically about, you know, we talk about that whole bit about bringing your authentic senses mm-hmm. self to work. And I feel like that was, you know, in some sense, like that same thing applies that I, that I couldn't be myself when I was working with people. And so it just made me not interested in trying. That makes a lot so, of sense. Yeah. Well, was this conscious back then? I mean, in your twenties, were you conscious yeah. of that or it's so, so it's not even later you look back and go, Oh, that's part of why I was acting that way. But you were actually in the moment thinking, Hey, I'm not able to bring my full self. So there's it's no reason to invest it. in yeah. that. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so that's there's... fascinating. It is yeah. fascinating. Yeah. There's some part of me that uh, I think by my 20s, I had well, I had access to the internet. When I got access to the internet, again, very common story with queer kids. When I got access to the internet, I discovered that there were possibilities that I had not been aware of and that there were options around uh, gender transition, various things like that. And I found the idea extremely scary, uh, but oh, also yeah. you know, uh, just, just extremely attractive. And so for a very long time, it was just until I've done that, like I don't, I don't feel like there's any point in investing time in these things and extended things like travel. Like there was like, I don't want to go traveling until, you know, I am, I I can travel as someone true to myself. Until you're you. Yeah. Oh my goodness. This is so interesting. Yeah. yeah. And so you went, you, you moved into this uh, bigger role. So, I mean, to me, an SRE is already kind of a leadership role because you're sort of, 
trying to to drive behaviors and processes and uh, the way people view services um, oh. in, a, in, a, in, a, in a bigger sense. At least that's, you know, I, I'm kind of, you know, part of, I have the observability religion. I'm pretty, I'm pretty interested. Uh, but, uh, but then you actually took on a role that was uh, to, to drive some change that you were intend you were meant to hire some folks and that wasn't going super well. And then what happened? Um, I burned out is I think the short version. There was, um, uh, it was a somewhat political environment and there was just, um, there was a, coup that was staged effectively. Um, my director was summarily fired. Uh, there was just a bunch of things that happened. And um, one of the things that I learned uh, that has been like a, a, an important lesson for me, I think, um, again, from like the, the TOCO job, is that when you lose executive support for what you're doing, you are lost. Like there is your, at best, you'll be able to work incredibly hard to defend what you're currently doing, your ability to make further changes is going to be extremely limited. Mm -hmm. And sure. I think it's always been something since then that I've been particularly sensitive to. And like, if there's, um, if I have a sense of losing executive support, I think I have a tendency to, you know, since then I've had a tendency to look for the exit. Mm -hmm. And as soon as there's a hint of we're now stuck, we're done, we're not going to be able to make more changes and basically look for that next opportunity because it's just so soul crushing and disheartening to, you know, not, not be able to make that uh, to make the case for like doing things that, correctly in in my view right like not being able to have that shared set of goals that shared set of language uh, around these things yeah and you're and in, in ultimately it's all for the sake of a corporation anyway so oh. you know you shouldn't you shouldn't need to invest your heart and soul in it and all your waking hours it, it, without support that's not worth it to me either i completely get that well, I mean, so yes, in some sense, but I also think that um, education never ends. And so a lot of the times I think about jobs as being just a succession of educational opportunities. Mm -hmm. And so like there are times when um, uh, I can certainly imagine that there will be a time when I'm excited about the opportunity to convince like the entire executive team that, that there's a better way of doing engineering. Right. Like I can certainly imagine that like that is not the challenge that I particularly want to take on today. But like, I, it's certainly not crazy that I will want to do that because mm -hmm. I think it will be a very educational opportunity. And I expect that when I'm ready for that, I will try it and I will comprehensively fail. <laughs> See, you do think you have a vision of your own future. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think that's true. <laughs> well, so, so I want to go back to, to, I mean, did you, did you have that question answered, Rachel, to your satisfaction before yeah, yeah, I changed direction? Okay. So, I mean, you started to say, you know, yeah, feeling like you couldn't bring your full self to work until, uh, you know, you began to transition. I mean, talk about the, you, you, you choose to start making the transition. Um, you, I, did, did that go immediately hand in hand with now I'm going to start investing in relationships and investing in people and like, what, what how did that look? And is that when you ended up in engineering leadership roles or how, you know, uh, say a little bit more about that. And we, we have to get to a few other questions. So I hate that we have to like hurry a little bit, but I'm, but we have to hurry a little bit because I want to ask you other things too. So of course, go ahead. So there's uh for me, so today, I think when people think about transition, there's a, a kind of a, a flag day. And I guess that's what a lot of people are aware of, that there's like, there's an announcement, there's an email that goes up that says, you know, here's my backstory here. Here's how I would like you to refer to me. And here's some background reading. Uh, I think probably we've all seen our share of those announcements by now. Um, that was never a thing that I did. 
And for me, it was more because I moved around a fair bit and I didn't really have strong connections to people, see previous discussion, it was fairly mm -hmm. easy for me to, uh, as part of relocating, I would just change something, right? So when I came to, um, uh, when I came to the States, I basically changed how I presented myself to uh, dating partners, right? Like it would be a upfront, like, this is who I am. Right. And for the sake of building like intimate relationships with people, um, you know, uh, like from the first date, like I would be all of this would be very apparent and clear. And that was, you know, terrifying, but it was the right thing to do. And it and it led to a lot of good connections. And when I moved to um, uh, when I moved to New York, um, then I think the, the next step was just um, uh, basically like just the way. Um, that I spoke to friends or related to friends or built those connections. Like I was, I think, transparent about that as well, but not so much at work. And then when I came back from New York to San Francisco, that was when I also flipped the, the gender bit in the HR systems and uh, changed my name internally and did all of those things. And so I came back to California um, with, you know, a, a new affection, effectively a new professional persona that was, you know, just, it required a lot of work, but at that point, like that was when I started doing that. And I think that exactly because I had done that at work, like that actually triggered my interest or unblocked my interest in now building the kinds of work relationships that I think are, uh, are so much a part of what leadership is all about. And then things mm -hmm. started to go better at that point. What happened after that? Um, so I, as we discussed, I burnt out on the network space and I went over back to classic Google SRE and I, um, uh, I was manager for um, uh, an SRE team. Uh, we looked after a, um, a fairly critical backend service, um, which you know everything is at scale at Google. Um, and sure. the team was very unhealthy in a lot of ways uh, because this was soon after Google had started their cloud, their big cloud push. Um, there was a lot of focus on that, but there wasn't a lot of quality leadership around it internally at Google. And so this team had been, uh, there were a lot of junior people on this team and they'd had people with VP titles breathing down their necks uh, in response to any outage or any blip or things like that. And there was just a lot of trauma and PTSD on the team. Um, I was not equipped to help. Mm -hmm. Like this was my first time in a role like that. And I recognized the problem and I didn't have a lot of tools around that. Um, so this was, uh, you know, I, I don't know that I can, I mean, I obviously I did my best and I think that there were things that that were positive. And I think that together with the rest of the leadership team in that group, like we made some pretty positive changes and I learned a lot about that and also about prioritizing it. Um, but, um, you know, when I, I don't know if there's a trend, but whenever whenever I look back on these things, like it is much, much easier for me to see the failures and the the lessons that I want to draw from that than it is to like pick out the things that I think I did well. And <laughs> sure. it's because do anything well, but I I certainly have a large uh, array of failures to dwell on. <laughs> yeah, awesome. Well, <laughs> so, um, so talk about your relationship with authority, and it sounds like you know your relationship with uh, leadership and and a lot of the people interactions is intimately tied to your personal identity and how you present yourself, etc. Um, but but talk about authority in general. Like, how do you feel about others having authority over you? You having authority over others? And and I'm curious too if that ties into your personal identity and um, and your transition as well. Um. So I guess uh, I'm inclined to try to decompose that question a bit. Like what are, what are the elements of, of, sure. of I think there's pull, it, pull it apart. 
Yeah, like, I mean, I guess um, accountability versus um, direction mm-hmm. and maybe versus responsibility. But I guess I guess there's actually, there's something else that maybe I should lead off with, which is um, I, have, I have drunk the Kool-Aid about uh, engineering management. Um, I see engineers as holding all of the cards. Uh, like any one of my engineers at any point can walk out, uh, basically like just, just walk off the job and find themselves a higher paying job uh, down the street within a week, right? Yep. Like there's not, um, so we don't, you know, as, as engineering leaders, as engineering management, like we don't have the kind of transactional relationship with people that I imagine is, is there maybe in, I don't know, like in, in fast food or in retail or things like that, right? Like there's a, the, the power dynamic is definitely mm-hmm. the other way around. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't really tell people what to do. Like you can't have that authority. Yeah, command and control. I'm yeah, your yeah. boss. Listen. Yeah. I'm the boss exactly. of you. <laughs> yeah. And so, I mean, I, maybe, maybe you, you can do that on occasion, but like in some sense you have to have like this, this ledger of all the positive things that, that, you know, you're doing to, to support them and uh, encourage them and guide them and like give them the, the satisfaction that they need so that you can draw down on that when you do need to do the pivot or the change in direction. Yeah. Like um, so it's, it's much more about, um, I guess, uh, you know, inspiration rather than direction for me. Uh, and I think the same thing kind of applies to, to me in thinking about like authority influences over me. Um, except that I, I guess I just have very broad interests, like just, I'm interested in just so many things. And so even, uh, even where there's, you know, somebody comes to me and says this thing, you, you must do this thing. Like in general, that's not. Like it's never transactional for me. It will be a case of what an interesting area. Like there's a, I hadn't even been thinking about this, but if I go and dig into that, like I'm going to find a bunch of things there that are interesting, a bunch of interesting directions to pursue. And I just wind up being very excited about new things in general. So I guess I don't have that problem. But anyway, let me, let me go back to that, trying to decompose this. Um, So, I mean, I said accountability, direction, responsibility, like how, how would you break this down like what are your what are the main things for you that come out when you when you think of authority hmm. oh go ahead kendall well, <laughs> <laughs> um i mean i think that those are those are some of the things you're some of the things you're pointing at are part of that i i think the um authority has gosh a whole bunch of different things influence um leadership direction setting etc um you know, at, at the at some point, somebody needs to decide what direction you're going and set context to get people to go that direction. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, I, mean, I guess we touched a, a little bit on that direction side. Like there's a, um, I think it's um, high, what is it? Like high, high intense, high scale management, high volume management, Andy Grove, the, oh, the, the Intel CEO book. There's one of the things yeah. is that, if you have to make a, this is me paraphrasing, but if you have to make a direction, you've failed, right? Like there's a, um, so if you have to make a decision, right, that, that forces a direction, you've kind of failed. The, uh, when you have that group of people in the room, like the answer should be clear to everybody once all the data is presented, right? The right thing to do for the company, it should be unambiguous. And if it's not unambiguous, then you don't have enough information in the room. Okay. And so what you should do is bring the rest of that information in so that it becomes unambiguous. So the role of a leader is actually to enable that to happen rather than to make the decision. Is is that kind of where that's going? I mean, I think that that is the thinking around that. And I think that, you know, again, I'm an SRE, so everything that I think about always has like the scale footnote on it. And making individual decisions is not scalable, right? Like there's a, 
like you, the, the thing that scales is a process around this. And so ideally, the like, what is the way in which I empower the people in my team to make the decisions that otherwise they would come to me for, right? And that has to be, I think, through giving them the information that they need to make a decision that is clearly correct. Have you had that kind of leadership? Is that some uh, something that you've experienced and that's, or is that just something you've read about in books? Because I, I feel like I've not really seen anything quite that lofty and aspirational in terms of uh, who is a leader. Uh, so has that been something you've experienced? I think in SRE in particular, we tend to see this perhaps more often than in other places mm -hmm. because SRE by its nature, I think just has a huge cognitive splay between levels. Like there's just, there's a ton of, uh, so my org, I have um, uh, like 50 people under me and the, the range that we cover across the company is simply huge. Mm -hmm. Like it is, not, it is not practical for me to be a decision maker on, um, like on the details of the things that we work on, right? Because there's my head would explode if I tried to fit it all inside. So the 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 thing that is important to me um, in order to be able to scale the org, in order to be able to scale that process of finding the right path forward, um, is to work out exactly you know what is the right way to delegate those decisions down or that de decision making. I'm going to say what? power, but that's not, it's sort of contradictory to what I just said before. But I think you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's what is the context that you need in order for you to make this decision, because I should not make the, all of those decisions. Yeah, right? there, there needs to be a um, run book for all of those things, a way that you make the decision and who is involved uh, coming, you know, it doesn't come down from the top. There's a known process for, to follow. Yeah, definitely. And so I think that a lot of this is, you know, I, I rely on my org to be, um, to be delivering, right, delivering the, the value that we need to deliver. And I spend more of my time thinking about, you know, the derivatives and the integrals of what we do, because that is the, um, yeah. Uh, and so again, like there are times when I do absolutely have to get involved or I have opinions about particular technical things. Like I don't love being the, the you know, the seagull director that will just die. <laughs> and crap program. on everybody. Yeah. Right, exactly. Um, I want to avoid doing that. Uh, Largely successfully, I hope. Um, the um, but yeah, that's I've gotten lost in my own rambling. Here. I don't know. It's I no. think it's super interesting <laughs> that you talked about it as being you know your role being more around uh, the derivative and the integral of of the the decision making process, um, and I think it's super clear that you have a different, very considered relationship with authority than you did when you were a kid and when you were growing up. Um, and I, 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 uh, I want to, I want to kind of turn things a little bit to, uh, to your personal life, if that's okay. Um, now that you're kind of in a, in a, a more stable leadership role where you have some more level of confidence about who you are and how you present yourself to others, uh, and how your relationships are built with them. Um, it really sounds like becoming a leader we usually ask the question, how has becoming a leader affected your personal life? Has it been positive? Has it been negative? It seems like the, the question is kind of inverted for you. Your personal life definitely affected your leadership. Um, and it sounds as though, you know, it may have delayed your maturity as a leader, but that it's all been to the positive since then. Would you agree with that? Do you have any particular uh, personal life to leadership stories you would like to share? Um, is there anything else? Um, I guess not. Like there's 
it's we, we talk about the desirability of having your personal and professional lives decoupled. Mm -hmm. I don't know that I've been I certainly haven't been good at that in the past. I think I'm much better at it now. I have a I have a uh, a, a delightful toddler who's soon turning two running oh, around. Yay. And, and so when uh you know I, I have you know a hard stop uh in the afternoon every day and that's that's just how it is. And I have no trouble disconnecting because like she is the like the most important thing for me. Um but like one of the things that I do notice is that um, a lot of the philosophy overflows, like I spend, um, uh, I guess I spend a, maybe a disproportionate amount of time thinking about philosophy, uh, a philosophy of leadership, philosophy of organizational development or of, or of SRE, of like many things. Like I always, uh, I guess, try to find the principles and, and find those, those guides. Um, and I think that doing that in uh, a leadership context means that a lot of the things that you think about translate into personal contexts as well. Mm -hmm. Like there are many conversations that, that, you know, I will have outside the work context now where, you know, there's a part of my brain that is trying to put pieces together of what is like, what is blocking you from your passions? Like, what is the thing that is standing between you and like the, the thing that would bring you fulfillment and satisfaction? Um, like, how do we align that passion with some kind of accountability um, like mm. it's, it's part of my role as leaders, part of the job. Um, but outside that, like maybe, you know, as a friend or a mother or a wife, like, is that maybe that's just manipulative? I don't know. Like it's, it, I, I don't quite know how to think about that. Is it kind of yeah. related to the situation where you, once you realize something about yourself, either a weakness or a strength or some way that impacts your life, you see it everywhere. You see it in other people. You, you want to apply well, the things that you learned and made your life better to them as well. I, I like to think of it as being, you know, it's very positive and intent, whether it's positive always an outcome is, you know, not necessarily the same. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I think philosophy, a lot of the practice also overflows. Like I just, I have a lot more difficult conversations uh, professionally than I do personally. Like it is part of my job to have, sure. uh, to have those things. And so, um, and so therefore I've gotten much better at them over the last, you know, however many years than I was before. Um, and that definitely influences my communication style with friends and family. Like, again, I think for the better, but I mean, maybe you could argue that that it comes at the cost of like some sincerity or authenticity outside that. But mm. like, what what is authenticity, right? Like, is my like professional persona like less authentic than my like immature personal persona? I don't. <laughs> it's a, a really interesting question, but I I think it is a lot about intent uh, in that particular. Yeah. You know, intent isn't always the most important thing, but I think that it is. Uh, pretty important in this situation. It makes sense to me that you would want to improve a situation one way or the other based on what you learned, whether it was something at work or not at work. Yeah, for okay. sure. Well, and real quick before we let you go, what's, I mean, you have a kid. What are your other outside of work hobbies that keep you entertained? Well, I decided I needed a pandemic hobby, so I bought a 3D printer. Ooh. Ooh. Um, Mostly printing work. guns or? <laughs> work. Oh, I see. Okay. So now your hobby uh, is trying to make it work. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was, I, I bit off a little bit more than I could chew with that. Um, the, um, I don't know, like this, I think that in, in some ways the pandemic has been um, arguably easier on me in some ways because uh, like our daughter was whatever, like nine months old or 10 months old when the pandemic hit. So we'd already been in lockdown for nine or 10 months, effectively. Mm. Like we had just learned how to have a date night. Right? <laughs> I, I, and like, and so the lockdown happened. It's like, oh, we're, we're familiar with this situation. 
Um, like it was extremely hard on us for the first couple of months because our uh, our nanny was also unab unable to join us. But once you know, once it it released enough for that, it's just. I think this is the wrong time to ask me like what else I do because I, think, <laughs> yeah, I can totally see that. It's the wrong time to ask everyone. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, well, Mickey, if people want to know more about you, where can they find you on the internet? I am occasionally on Twitter uh, as Dicro, D-I-C-H-R-O, uh, but I am much more often on Instagram as HB Mickey, H-B-M-I-K-I. Um, and I almost exclusively post stories because I really appreciate the ephemeral nature of these things. Um, so that is where you can find me. Cool. I will put that in the show notes. Thank yeah, thank you, you so, so much. much for being here and and even just being vulnerable about some of these things that are, you know, not always easy for everyone to talk about. And uh, I appreciate that that you're open about it and process it with us. So I'm looking forward to hearing about your 50s because they're going to be awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm excited to find out what those are going to look like. Great. Thanks a lot. Okay. Thank you very much for your time. I really enjoyed it.